Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. Amit here. The next four episodes are amongst the most important in the COVID Heart series. We have the honor of learning about COVID-19 directly from two incredible infectious disease experts, Dr. Sama Nematolahi and Dr. Natasha Chita from the Johns Hopkins Hospital. We previously made the case that every cardiologist must learn about COVID-19 because of the multitude of the cardiovascular implications that we are only beginning to learn about. But as the prevalence of this pandemic becomes pervasive, we are realizing that everyone needs to meet, greet, and get to know the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's high time that we bring down the silos that separate us and stand together as one unified team. It's not internist first, or even doctor first. It's hashtag humanity first. On that note, let's meet COVID-19 together. This is part one of four of the COVID-19 ID series. In this first part, we discuss the emerging therapies in our armamentarium. Be sure to stay tuned for the remaining three parts in which we tackle advice for the healthcare worker, the clinical presentation and diagnosis, and finally, the virology. Folks, we've already put the core in coronavirus. Now it's time to put the ID in COVID. This episode was recorded on March 27th, 2020. As information rapidly evolves, please stay up to date with the most current guidelines. And friends, as always, remember this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to learn more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID era directly from expert ID nerds, micro nerds, infecto nerds. Either way, let's get started. Hey, cardio nerds, this is our sixth episode in the COVID-19 series. We think it's time to reach out across divisions for a much-needed urgent consultation and insights from our fellow infectious disease experts, Dr. Natasha Chida and Dr. Saman Nematolahi. It's such a pleasure to introduce one of my mentors, Dr. Natasha Chida, an infectious disease expert at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Chida received her MD from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, where she also earned a Master's of Science in Public Health. She completed internal medicine residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital and Infectious Disease Fellowship at Johns Hopkins, where we were lucky to keep her on as faculty. She is a truly incredible educator and mentor to all levels of trainees. She serves as Assistant Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship Program, Co-Director of the Medical Education Pathway for Residents, Director of Education for the Johns Hopkins Center for Global Health Education, and Course Director for the Topics and Interdisciplinary Medicine Course for Medical Students. Dr. Chita has been... Honestly, you've been such an incredible mentor to me throughout residency, from like personal things to clinical things, from bad days of intern year. Um, I really have so many amazing things to say about you, but I will hold that for another time. Well, I'm very excited to be here uh, with you, Heather, because you are really one of my favorite people. And I think your work on this podcast shows everybody um, how awesome you are and what great educator you are as well. So thanks for inviting me. 
Dr. Cheetah, having you on the show is incredible for all of us. You were such a resource for me throughout residency and especially last year. And I'm also so happy that we have one of my other favorite people on the show, Dr. Saman Nematolahi. Saman graduated from the University of Arizona College of Medicine and finished internal medicine residency at Columbia University. He will be an incredible transplant ID specialist. But more than that, he is a teacher at heart and is obtaining a master's of education at the Johns Hopkins School of Education and was recently awarded a grant to develop a fungal diagnostic curriculum for residents. My two favorite things about Salman are, one, he has a no-holes-barred, all-in laughter, and I do hope you get to hear that today, and two, his beautiful son, Nolan. Nolan's flutter moment in episode number four remains my absolute favorite 15 seconds ever recorded on our show. Oh my God, that flutter moment was absolutely the best. It was actually one of our first flutter moments. So Saman, thanks for taking the plunge with us. And since then, we've been having a lot of great warm and fuzzy moments. I think you set the stage for what flutter moments are supposed to sound like. You know, maybe we can convince Saman to give us an, another Nolan flutter. He's uh, a true star. <laughs> Definitely. I'll, I'll ask him if he's uh, up to it. But I wanted to thank you all for uh, inviting myself and Dr. Cheetah onto the podcast today. You have made cardiology very palatable for me now. I did not like it much as a resident, but now I've listened to all your episodes and I have a much more of a true appreciation for uh, cardiology. Uh, so I thank you for that. I appreciate it. Mission accomplished. Yeah, mission accomplished. So mine, I've heard you on Clinical Problem Solvers, but you have an amazing podcast voice, I have to say. So thanks for joining the show. It's really a treat for us. We are cardio nerds. But as micro nerds, we would love your thoughts on antiviral options. Honestly, there seems to be so many treatment options out there, but the data seems sparse at best. In episode number 20, we dove into a beautiful discussion on the intricate management of COVID-related cardiorespiratory failure. We are getting missed COVIDs through ARDS and mixed shock, but how do we help her with the medications? There is a lot of buzz about remdesivir. Uh, great question, uh, Corinne. I'll start off by saying that currently there are no FDA-approved medications for uh, SARS-CoV-2 and uh, COVID-19. So the following that what um, Natasha and I will be discussing is really based on like preclinical data and some limited uh, clinical data that is available. Each institution also has different protocols as far as like whether you discuss the case with your infectious disease team or with different protocolized teams out there. So I just making sure that you are aware of that and whether your institution does have clinical trials that you can enroll your patients in. So as with respect to remdesivir, this medication is an IV only medication and it inhibits the RNA dependent RNA polymerase of uh, coronavirus. It does have activity against fibroviruses such as like Ebola and then paramyxoviruses such as RSV and then other like pathogenic coronaviruses. And it has been shown to inhibit MERS in the human epithelial cells. And now I'll um, give it to Natasha to talk a little bit more about the data and some recommendations about remdesivir. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about other agents in the media and on social media, but really remdesivir is the most promising agent that we have clinically available to us at this time. As Salman said, because this is IV, it is really not available in the outpatient setting and it's being trialed in the inpatient setting as well. Recently, though, Gilead, which makes remdesivir, had been doing compassionate use for releasing it, but because it's so important for us to understand if this agent really works, Gilead is focusing on the trials that are using remdesivir. And so currently there are three clinical trials available for remdesivir. The largest one is sponsored by NIAID or the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease.
diseases. And that is a phase two randomized placebo-controlled trial. And I would have to clarify, but I think there in this trial, there's an early arm where you give it early and there is a late arm where you give it late in the course of disease. And so that'll hopefully give us more information about use there. And then there are two phase three uh, randomized open label trials that Gilead itself is running as well. So there are three trials available for people to be enrolled in. Gilead had been using uh, compassionate use as well, but because of the volume and the, and the need to really prove whether or not this agent works, as of the last week, I think, expanded use was changed so that that is only available for pregnant women and children because those are people excluded from the trials. So at this point, you will only be able to access remdesivir through a clinical trial or if you're a pregnant woman or a child under the age of 18 through a compassionate use. Well, actually, I didn't know that shift. Uh, that's really helpful to know. And I think things to know is that uh, one potential toxicity is liver dysfunction. And so people who have evidence of liver abnormalities are not going to be eligible for these trials. And as we had noted earlier, a fair amount of people will have elevated AST and ALT when they come in. But, you know, two times upper limit of normal, like that's not going to be a problem. But if you come in with clear evidence of liver damage, then you're not going to be enrolled into these trials right now. This is uh, so helpful. You know, when Dr. Singalani was talking about ACEs and ARBs in episode 19, that was much closer to my comfort level. I'm learning so much here. What about the other antivirals, lopinavir, ritonavir, which I think is, goes under the trade name of Kaletra for some people that might be more familiar with that? Yeah, great question. So that's also gotten a lot of buzz. Kaletra, you know, lopinavir, ritonavir, these are um, protease inhibitors. And so in SARS, it did show to have some lower rates of death and lower rates of intubation. So that is why it's being, you know, thought about to be used for SARS-CoV-2. And it's important to note, though, that the coronavirus proteus is different than the HIV proteus. And so there's thought that maybe it wouldn't work for this one. We do know that Kelitra is highly protein bound. So it's unclear what is really getting into the alveoli and also into the nasopharynx. And I'll pass over to Natasha to talk about the data and recommendations. Thanks, Simon. That's a great review of Kaletra, which, you know, I'm, I'm actually an HIV provider, so I uh, have a, a long history of thinking about this drug, which I have to say is not that easy to take and causes a lot of GI upset. But the only randomized control trial we have right now for COVID-19 is in lopinavir ritonavir. And this was published recently in the New England Journal. And it was a trial of hospitalized patients with severe COVID, and they were given Kaletra in 100 patients, and the 99 patients were standard of care. The primary endpoint was time to clinical improvement, and the result was basically that there was no difference. Uh, lopinavir ritonavir did not shorten time to clinical improvement, and there were no differences either in secondary endpoints like reduction in viral load, duration of viral shedding, duration of needing oxygen, um, duration of hospitalization, or death. And so at least in this specific group of patients, it didn't seem to work. I will say that the WHO has recently launched this really exciting thing called the Solidarity Trial, where they're actually going to be testing four different agents at sites across the world. And lopinavir ritonavir is included in the Solidarity Trial, um, combined with interferon, actually. So there's still going to be some information that we need to know about the use of lopinavir ritonavir, but at least in patients who are hospitalized with severe disease, it does not seem to be efficacious. There are some people who think that maybe earlier on it could show some benefit, but as Saman noted, actually in the in vitro studies, the inhibition of coronaviruses with lopinavir ritonavir requires 
higher doses than what we would use in humans. And so, you know, some of us feel like this is probably not going to pan out, but others feel like we should be looking at it in early disease to see if it makes a difference. And hopefully solidarity will give us more answers to that. Thank you so much for that overview, Natasha. I was wondering for the NEJM trial, I haven't read it personally, but there was some talk that it might be underpowered. And so uh, there might still be some lifeline left for Kalitra after all, and that, that maybe WHO can help us further look at it. Exactly. I think that's right, that it was underpowered. I think people feel, though, that this trial combined with what we know about the in vitro data, which, uh, you know, is not that as exciting as remdesivir, for example, probably this won't pan out. But I think that's why WHO is moving forward with including it in solidarity. Oh, thank you for that, Dr. Cheetah. Now, there's a lot of buzz, a lot, a lot, a lot of buzz about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Uh So what's, (laughs) what's the story with that? Yeah, uh, great question. So these are both antiparasitic drugs and hydroxychloroquine also being used for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. What I learned recently is that plaquenil, you know, hydroxychloroquine is the only medication that has been shown to improve mortality in um, SLE patients. So just keeping that in mind as far as critical shortages we're seeing with this drug being used for COVID-19 when possibly having issues with um, giving this drug as a life-saving measure for patients that have rheumatologic disorders like lupus. But with respect to its, its activity with coronavirus, it may interfere with the cellular receptor ACE2, you know, ACE2 coming back here again. Hydroxychloroquine is actually a weak base, and so it may impair acidification of endosomes where it can interfere with virus trafficking uh, within the cells. And so I'll pass it over to Natasha now to talk about the trials. and Or the lack of trials, but um, <laughs> yeah, this is a hot topic. I think all of us have probably been asked this question. And so, you know, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have a long history of being trialed as antiviral agents. They were trialed in SARS and in MERS. And in vitro, it does seem like there is some inhibition of replication of coronaviruses. But to be honest, again, it's not amazing. But I think because these drugs are, you know, pretty available and also so relatively, at least hydroxychloroquine, relatively non-toxic. They've been trialed more. So there's a study out there from France that's getting a lot of traction. It was picked up by certain world leaders. Um, everyone thinks this is a quote-unquote game changer, but I'm going to throw a little bit of cold water on this idea. So in this very small study, patients were enrolled to um, receive hydroxychloroquine and some received hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And in the end, there were 26 patients who were included in the study. Of those, I think 20 got hydroxychloroquine and six got hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. And the primary endpoint to this study was actually not things that we think are important, like, you know, mortality, hospitalization, time to reduction in oxygenation needs, things like that. It was actually viral carriage of the nasopharynx, which I think is interesting that that was the primary endpoint. The authors discussed that their secondary endpoints were these clinical endpoints, um, but the secondary endpoints are not presented in the study. The only thing that's presented is the viral carriage data. And there were significant reductions in time to resolution of viral carriage in the hydroxychloroquine group and even more in the hydroxychloroquine and azithro group. And so people took that to mean that like this is a game changer. These drugs are going to make a huge difference. But what I would say is, A, we don't know what to do with that endpoint. Does the presence of virus in the nosopharynx have relevance for clinical outcomes? We don't know that answer. 
does a reduction in shedding have, again, like relevance clinically? We don't necessarily know that answer. And this was a very small study. And there are some people who have a lot of questions about the statistics. And in reanalysis, some of the statistically significant findings don't pan out. So what I'll say is that we need more data than what we have, and that this study is certainly not enough to make hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine and azithro the standard of care. I'm just comparing that to the ischemia trial that enrolled, I think, more than 5,000 patients. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Enrolled more than 8,500 patients and randomized almost 5,200 patients. But, you know. I'm going to mention this later. Go big. Really nice um, perspective in JAMA on the need for clinical trials in these settings. So there's, uh, there's also a second study that was very recently published out of China in 30 patients who were randomized to receive hydroxychloroquine or standard of care. And again, their primary endpoint was also viral carriage in the nasopharynx. I don't know why everyone loves this endpoint, but um, in that study. Um, so in this study, there was actually no clear difference between conversion of viral carriage with hydroxychloroquine versus standard of care. And there was also no difference in hospitalization and also temperature normalization, et cetera. So this is another uh, regimen that's being included in solidarity, and I think we'll have more information about it soon. So more to come, more studies out there. I think solidarity will be a, a great uh, tool to help us understand more about this drug. I will also say that there is a very large study being run out of the University of Minnesota on the use of hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis in healthcare workers who were exposed to known COVID patients. And so if people want to enroll in that, you actually just contact this study and they'll ship you hydroxychloroquine overnight to take. And so I think that's a great thing to do, to do this in a trial situation so we can see whether or not it really works. Right now, the jury is out, but we'll hopefully have more data soon. I think one thing that's really important to think about with, with a combination of azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine is both are QT prolonging agents. And as Sama nicely outlined, um, in some small series of severe COVID, a good amount of people will develop cardiomyopathy. And so again, this is a potentially dangerous combination in folks who have some baseline cardiac uh, issues and like QT prolongation. So I don't think we should be prescribing it to everybody. And I definitely wouldn't do it without um, monitoring uh, from a healthcare professional. Natasha, thank you so much for going over the data and the limitations of it. It really puts all of this early enthusiasm into perspective, but I'm glad that there's more data coming our way. With regards to the severely ill patients, we've been hearing a lot about the cytokine storm in these inflammatory states in these patients. I was wondering, do you have guidance in terms of checking inflammatory markers, the role of steroids, and specifically tocilizumab in the setting? Great question. Tocilizumab is getting a lot of attention, just like you mentioned, to be used in severe cases because the thought that we have a lot of inflammation. So we think that, kind of mentioned before, during that first phase of the disease process, we have a lot of damage being done by the virus itself. And then as time goes on, we start to see more of like a immune, uh, like an inflammatory effect during that second phase when patients are getting really sick. And so the thought is that we can give tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 blocker to be used during this more uh, critical phase. So then I'll pass it over again to Natasha to talk about, you know, whether there's any trials going on and whether we should be using this in critically ill patients. Great. So tocilizumab has gotten a lot of traction, I think, because of the biological plausibility of an anti-IL-6 agent like tocilizumab would be helpful. And actually in the Chinese national guidelines, they include tocilizumab in the recommendations for severe COVID. Um, there's one study that has come out of China that is 
uh, not peer reviewed um, of 21 patients with severe critical COVID who got TOSI and then had some improvement in fever reduction and oxygenation, et cetera. But there's no better data than that. Wow. Um, 21 patients or 21,000? 21. 21. <laughs> That's what it's It's amazing. Stop being so mean. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I love ID. <laughs> I know. Well, we're not happy about it either, to be fair. There is a randomized control trial that's being done in the United States called the Regeneron trial, which will hopefully give us more information as well. I would say that it, it it's not just severity of disease that should be a criteria to consider using one of these agents. It really is cytokine storm because that's where this is going to be helpful. You know, if someone's just severe disease with ARDS, it's probably not going to be helpful to block IL-6. But if someone has cytokine storm, then it would be helpful. And at least in our institution, we're talking a lot about, for example, patients who get cytokine storm after CAR-T therapy and the use of elizabeth there and trying to extrapolate some of that information. Should we be giving TOSI to everybody? I, I think probably not. I think if you have someone who has evidence that they're developing cytokine storm and they're at the point where it's onsetting and it's not severe yet, maybe this could be helpful. But I would really think about using this if you're at an institution that has considered specific criteria of when to use it. I wouldn't necessarily um, just give it to people who are critically ill. The Regeneron trial will hopefully give us more about whether or not this is helpful but in the interim, if people do feel like they're seeing patients with cytokine storm and your institution does have some guidance on when to consider this, then I, I would think about using it. But in the absence of that, I would hold off. With regards to steroids, this has been somewhat controversial. I think the overall consensus among people is that steroids may be harmful in this setting. There were some reports out of China that it was potentially harmful. There was recently a study that used uh, methylprednisolone in people with ARDS from COVID, and there was potentially some benefit there. So, you know, the data is not entirely clear, but I think the general consensus and also the recommendations out of the American College of Critical Care Medicine is to only use steroids if you have another reason to do it. So if you have someone with COPD, they have COVID with a COPD exacerbation, use them then. But for just primary treatment of COVID-related ARDS, I think the consensus is to avoid. That's great. I want to transition a little bit. So we fielded questions on Twitter regarding COVID-19. And one question that came up actually a few times was special guidance for immunocompromised patients, such as heart transplant patients and so on. What are the recommendations for this special group of patients? That is a great question, Corrine. I think we're still figuring out a lot about this. There's um, a group, actually one of my co-residents back at Columbia, Olivia Cates, is uh, working on a case series and collecting a lot of data on the solid organ transplant patients that have that develop COVID-19. And so for the learners out there, if you do have any patients that are solid organ transplants with coronavirus, I urge you to send some of this information. She has like a form that you can fill out online and you can submit some of that information to her so we can really best understand the clinical characteristics of um, patients that are immunosuppressed. I will say based on that, the American Society of Transplantation has released an FAQ page about um, SARS COVID-2, they answer a lot of common questions that are asked both for providers and for patients that have transplants. And so I'll say that both mild and severe infections have been reported in this vulnerable patient population, and the risk factors for severe infection have not been fully characterized just yet. But we do think based on other viruses that transplant patients may have a greater viral burden and prolonged viral shedding. 
And so they do address uh, wearing masks in public. And I think that is debated amongst the immunosuppressed uh, patients. It is unknown whether wearing a mask will help prevent infections just because, you know, the surgical masks are not tight fitting. However, they may prevent patients from touching their nose and their mouth and so on and so forth. But in clinics here, for example, when someone does come in that is sick, immunocompromised or not, we do give them a mask to prevent uh, droplet spread. So I think there's something to be said about giving masks to patients when they come into clinic when they're symptomatic. But then it is unclear whether, you know, an N95 mask is better than a surgical mask. There was a recent publication that showed that actually surgical masks and N95 do share the same protection for the flu, but we just don't know that as Natasha had mentioned before, we just don't know that for sure for the coronavirus. Currently, the CDC is not recommending mask use for infection protection outside of the hospital at this time. But every institution and every center does have different protocols. Um, so, for example, sometimes the lung transplant recipients, you know, they'll wear masks when they're outdoors or they're going to clinic. You know, they have protocols for PMT patients. So I urge uh, all learners to follow their institution guidance as far as when their patients should be wearing masks um, or not. These patients should always be doing uh, frequent hand washing and or using hand sanitizers and lots of caution about being in overcrowded situations and really practicing uh, physical distancing. And so if there's really high levels of SARS-CoV-2 circulating in the recipient's uh, area, really trying to avoid public areas, including schools and truly trying to stay at home as uh, much as possible. Okay. So let me throw out another question here. You know, we've been talking about a lot of medicines and uh, different therapies that are coming down the pipeline. As a medicine doctor, hashtag internist first, I'm really excited about all those options and I can't wait for more of those to come to fruition or we find another medicine that helps our patients. But we also know that the immune system may be the answer to all of this. And so first of all, do we develop protective immunity after we get infected so that this doesn't create a whole wave again across the globe at some point down the road? And secondly, what is the current state and status of the vaccines that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, great question. So I think as respect to this immunity, this really the lack of immunity to SARS-CoV-2 is really one of the big reasons for the current pandemic. You know, I recently learned from uh, Paul Sachs when he discussed COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 in the Curbsiders uh, 200 episode that, you know, we do have immunity from flu from the year to year, even though there's some changes to the strains and that bad flu seasons are when we don't have strong immunity to the strain. And so given that we have such a lack of immunity to this, that is just really spreading very quickly throughout the populations. Current animal studies show that animals do have immunity that can be protected for SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And similar to other coronaviruses, uh, we do think that humans will likely build immunity. The issue is that based on prior coronaviruses, that we will likely have waning immunity over time. But we just don't know when that will happen, whether that will be a few months or a few years. So there is risk of reinfection after we start to have some waning immunity. And this is really a crucial point for vaccine development. So if we can't make antibodies and we can't develop immunity to the virus, then we may have difficulty in creating a vaccine. And I'll just add to that, this is unpublished data, but there are anecdotal reports of patients in China who recovered from COVID or seem, seemingly recovered from COVID and then uh, redeveloped symptoms uh, after being yeah. in a symptom-free period. And so again, those are anecdotal reports. This is not something that's been clearly studied, but I think that does raise a concern about not everyone developing immunity as we would necessarily expect. 
You know, to piggyback on that note and, and the power of our own immune system, Natasha, do you have any comments on the possibility of using convalescent serum, a, a technique which has been useful in similar scenarios with the flu in the past? That's a great question, actually. So yeah, convalescent serum is a very interesting topic. And actually, recently, the F, just this week, the FDA announced that it is going to have an emergency IND for compassionate use convalescent serum. Um, so this is something that people can consider if they're interested in, in using it. And I think they're, they, this is going to be studied as well. But for now, it is available via an emergency IND. And there was just a published paper today, March 27th, on using convalescent sera in um, five critically ill patients where they gave them IgG and they did show improvements in fever, their SOFA score decreased, the P to F ratio improved, and the viral load decreased. And so I guess, you know, obviously this is a small sample size of just five patients, but it is somewhat hopeful that this may work with this disease. This kind of dovetails to the next idea of vaccination for these viruses, especially since we know that vaccination has been so successful in mitigating so many diseases, including viral illnesses. So what do you anticipate with regards to vaccination development for COVID-19? Yeah, so right now there are three candidates that are, uh, that are phase one vaccine candidates. And we anticipate that at the earliest, we could have a candidate available in up to 18 months, which sounds long, but it's actually amazing when you think about vaccine research, uh, that we could get something out that quickly. The first uh, study that's actually already dosed somebody is a study being led by NIAID. Uh, NIAID actually partnered with a company called Moderna to use novel mRNA technology to create a vaccine candidate. Now, I can't go into the details of that because I am not nearly smart enough to understand how vaccine immunology works, but I can say that this is a revolutionary... I, I take I take issue with that last point, by the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> but um, but it's, it's a novel technology that's allowed a candidate to come to phase one trials much faster than previously. And I think that's really exciting and amazing. And I think also shows the, the foresight of NIAID and how Tony Fauci is really um, someone who pushes the envelope to try to improve health. Um, the other two candidates are traditional vaccine candidates that use adenovirus vectors. And those are currently also under recruiting uh, at this time in our phase one candidates. The Moderna NIAID study has actually finished recruitment already. The earliest we could see something on market would be 18 months at the very earliest, I think. Exciting. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Cardio Nerds, this is Justin Burke from The Curbsiders. I wanted to share what makes my heart a flutter, and I think it's initiatives like this. Crisis can sometimes bring out the worst in people, but I think more often it can really bring out the best. When you're surrounded by news stories that are scary and causing a lot of anxiety, it's inspiring to see not only uh, healthcare workers, scientists, and educators like yourself work together to try and make a positive difference, but also seeing the unsung heroes that put themselves at risk but are often less celebrated. Patient aides, cleaning staff, rideshare drivers, grocery clerks, and, and, and to everyone who just builds up the courage to continue trying to take advantage 
every day of the wonderful things in life um, and going on day by day. Thanks for doing this. Um, wow, that was uh, off, off recording. That was so eloquent. Yeah, really? That was, that was really good. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, I was like, damn, that's really good, Natasha. <laughs> that's a JAMA piece right there. Yeah. yeah.